Well, this is oddly familiar. Uh, You are all in the wrong place. So, uh, please forgive me if I stare at you, and if I stare while I'm preaching a little bit too long and you fall under conviction, don't worry, I'm probably looking for somebody else. Uh, Today we are in Haggai chapter 2, continuing through this minor prophet, Haggai chapter 2, in the second of what I hope will be three sermons. Next week, Lord willing, we will be back at Harvey Wheeler back in the morning and finishing out this minor prophet Uh, But today we are looking at the second of his oracles. The first one came, uh, if we convert uh, the dating, it came on August 29th of uh, 520 B.C. This one comes on, uh, on October 17th of the same year, just about a month and a half later. And we will find the prophet speaking now to God's people as they are about to begin the work of rebuilding the temple. Haggai chapter 2, today reading verses 1 through 9. You can find that if you have an ESV on page 791. Haggai chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 9. And before we read these words together, please join me as we pray and seek the Lord's blessing on our study. O glorious Lord, we thank you for this word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to us afresh through it. We thank you that your word is living, though we are dull of hearing. And we pray, Lord, that you, by your living word, would quicken us to hear and believe, uh, to trust in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We pray in his name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in the prophet Haggai, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month... On the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. It was at his uh, inaugural address in March of 1861, and Abraham Lincoln oozed presidential optimism. There was, of course, the looming conflict between the states, 
But on that day, uh, Lincoln promised that he said the mystic chords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union. That's what you want to hear from a newly elected politician. You want to hear hope and you want to hear confidence about what the American people can achieve together. Then time and experience have a way of tempering things. By June of the following year, in 1862, Lincoln's optimism had been replaced by grit. He said, I expect to maintain this contest until successful, or till I die, or am conquered. That same December, he wrote, if there is a worse place than hell, I am in it. We all know the experience of disappointment and discouragement. We all know that experience in the face of a large project that the work is too large, that our strength is too small, that we will probably never make much of a difference even if we try. Thankfully, most of our discouragements are brief, relatively minor, but then there are others. Parents get discouraged when they consider this cultural steamroller that is steadily advancing toward their children. Citizens get discouraged when it seems like the moral tide of the nation will only ever keep dropping lower. Christians get discouraged when they consider the small effect that the gospel seems to have as it goes out into the world and it sounds like a whisper against a hurricane. We know the experience of discouragement. And for the Christian, perhaps no discouragement is so discouraging as those doubts that we have about our contributions to the work that God has called us to. For the people of Haggai's day, that's where they were. They were discouraged. In August, the Lord had called them to put their hands to a task that was larger than their courage had been up to this point. And now, a month and a half later, in October, uh, they're just beginning to get started. And as the work was beginning, the real size of the project was coming into view. It, It wasn't just about the construction, of course. They knew about that, but it was also about the significance of what this building, what this house was supposed to proclaim to the watching world and to the people of Israel. God had called his people to build him a temple. Not a grange building, right? Not a, not a fire hall. Not even a cathedral as, as magnificent as some of those are. God called his people to build him a temple. A visible symbol of his divine dwelling place among all the peoples on the face of the earth. The only one. And the task was great. And their strength was small. And their efforts seemed inadequate, and the discouragement was beginning to settle in. Haggai, too, is a word from the Lord to people who are tempted to give up. People who are sometimes discouraged. They're tempted to put away their tools and throw up their hands and say, what's the use? What are we doing here? Why don't we just pack it in? 
And through that disillusionment, the Lord speaks. He calls his people to take courage. He calls them to keep working. He calls them to have faith in what he can do as he dwells among them. And through this word, God still speaks to discourage saints today. He calls us to take courage, not in what we can do, but what he can accomplish through us and among us. Today we're going to examine this passage under three headings. Three ways that faith answers discouragement. And they are to remember God's past, to remember God's presence, and to remember God's future. God's past, God's presence, and God's future. We begin by considering the past. That seems maybe like a strange place to start, especially when you consider that it was a remembrance of the past that was at the root of the discouragement of the people in the first place. The word of the Lord came to Haggai, verse 3, and he said, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes. Remember, this is still at the very beginning of the project. They had been busying themselves probably with clearing the site and deciding which stones they could salvage and and weighing out and measuring the timbers and making sure that everything would be sound. They're just getting started. But even now, at their first impression, everybody who could remember the past realized that they're putting their effort into something that would turn out to be a disappointment. It's going to be nothing like the wonder and the splendor of the temple that Solomon had built so many years before. Now, there's a parallel passage in Ezra 3 that you're already aware of, right? It was a time 16 years before this in Haggai chapter 2 where the people, uh, the people tried to build the temple the first time and they stopped maybe about where the people are now. They got as far as laying the foundation. And when the foundation was laid in Ezra chapter 3, there was this great cacophony, this mix of, of shouts and cheering on the one hand from those who were seeing something new. And there was a noise of wailing and weeping on the other hand from those who remembered what was before. And maybe that's the same thing that's happening all over again in Haggai's day. Maybe these younger men are filled with the optimism of inexperience. They don't know how bad it could turn out yet. But all the older men, maybe they are racked with sadness and longing as they remember the good old days. Your nostalgia has a way of producing disappointment in you if you let it. It can become like a mirage in the desert that, that only allows you to see what you want to see and not what's really there. Just this week, my wife and I were telling our children about the amusement park that we used to visit almost every summer growing up outside of Pittsburgh. And we told them about all of our favorite rides and we told them about all of our favorite snacks and about the fun of it all. And we made it sound so wonderful. And we said, we're going to take you back there someday. And I'm almost afraid to go back and see how badly I've over-exaggerated. I'm almost happier with the nostalgia than with the real thing. One commentator says that our childhood memories grow in size as we grow older. The youngest men among the Israelites here that would have had any kind of childhood memory of the original temple were at least in their early 70s. 
And it could be that their discouragement is coming from exaggerated memories, from a bit of sentimentality. They, they over-remember how good things had been once upon a time. Then again, I think it's more likely that these men aren't misremembering at all. In fact, they're probably remembering all too well. That's because in verse 3, the Lord is not dealing with nostalgia. He's addressing his people's past from a human perspective. Notice what he asks them. He says, how does it now appear in your eyes? That is from where you stand, from what you can see. According to human wisdom and evaluation, the way that you see it with your human eyes, how does it look to you? The Lord here is exposing the problem of our past comparisons. The problem is not just that we tend to remember the past incorrectly, but that we tend to remember the past unbelievingly. Our problem with the past is that we we tend to remember those good things we used to have and those wonderful things we used to be able to do, and we tend to forget the one who brought all those bygones blessings to us in the first place. We forget that they came from somewhere. We forget that they came from someone who was leading us in faithfulness to himself all of our days with him. Our problem with the past is that we all too often remember our own past and we forget God's instead. Now in this passage, the prophet is calling the people to take courage by remembering God's History, And we see that in two ways. We see it explicitly in verse 5. Take a look. There God mentions the covenant that he made when they came out of Egypt. He's telling him that he is the God who has proven his power through centuries of discouragement of his people. He is the God who sustained them through slavery and through deliverance and through the conquest of the land. In fact, he's the God who did it all over again. He did it very recently, 18 years prior to this. He did it through Cyrus when he did what Isaiah 43 calls a new thing, never before seen in all the earth, that the people should come out of exile and return to the land of their inheritance. God did it all over again. And the same God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who brought them back from exile, is not going to allow a construction project to sully his undefeated record of faithfulness toward his people. And so we see God's call to consider his past explicitly in verse 5. We also see it implicitly in the whole passage, beginning in verse 1. Verse 1 says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. That time stamp might not mean much to you, but it was significant to the Jews. That's because the seventh month was the festival month, full of feast days and holy Sabbaths and and special congregations set apart for the Lord. The first of the month was uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, the, uh, the head of the year, the Jewish New Year it's called now, Rosh Hashanah. And then on the, the 10th of the month was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then on the 15th day of the seventh month, according to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, on the 15th day of the seventh month, which would be six days before the word came through Haggai the prophet, on that day began a seven-day feast called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. It's also known as the Feast of Succoth. That's because Succoth means tent or tabernacle in the Hebrew language. 
Succoth was one part harvest party and one part camping trip. During the seven days of the festival, people were beginning to gather in the first fruits of their harvest. They were setting aside the best parts and the best offerings to give to the Lord. And they were also leaving their permanent homes and their dwellings. And they were camping out in their backyards and their town squares in tents and lean-tos that they would construct for themselves for just this very week. And the whole point was to remind themselves of their wilderness wanderings. That time when the Lord delivered them from the power of Egypt. And he led them, even despite their sin, despite their rebellion, he led them through the wilderness and living in tents and camping out for 40 years. And he led them to himself in the land that he promised to their fathers. It was also, of course, during this time, those 40 years and for a few hundred years after, that the Lord himself dwelt in a tent, in a tabernacle. The Lord who brought them through the wilderness made his tent, his home in a tent, and there he stayed until he stirred up Solomon to build a temple just as his father David had wanted him to. The temple that Solomon built took about seven years to construct. It was a marvel of epic and God-inspired proportions. It was a wonder to behold, the inner sanctuary, sanctuary excuse me, was covered every inch from floor to ceiling with solid gold. The rest of the temple outside and in was adorned with gold and silver and precious stones with wonderful carvings on the pillars and the doors. The limestone blocks were so perfectly cut at the quarry that not a single chisel could be heard at the building site. And then when the temple was completed, the Ark of God's Covenant was brought out of the tabernacle, out of his tent for the very last time, and it was led by a procession of sacrifices up and into the Holy of Holies that had been newly completed at the top of Mount Zion. And 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 2 tells us that the dedication of that temple and the procession of the Ark happened, it says, in the feast, in the month of Ethnaim, which is the seventh month. That is, it happened during the Feast of Tabernacles, and you know what that means, don't you? It means that God's word came through Haggai at exactly the right moment. It came on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It came while the people themselves were living in their tents, while they were contemplating God's faithfulness during the homelessness years of his people. God's word came while they were remembering how on that very same week, 450 years earlier, God fulfilled his promise to select a place for his name to dwell among all the peoples of the face of the earth. It came while they were just beginning the work that the Lord had called them to. It came to them while they were wondering how they would ever pull off something that would live up to what God's temple was supposed to be for his people. And when the Lord's word came through Haggai, he was saying to them, Don't forget who I am, and don't forget what I've done. Remember God's past, his history, he's telling them. Be strong, says the Lord, to the leaders and to the people. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Remember all of his glorious deeds and the wonders that he worked in the sight of the nations. Remember God's history, his goodness to his people. Dear Christian, when you begin to feel that sensation of spiritual discouragement tightening its hand around your soul, you need to do the same. 
When your faith seems small and God's calling seems big, when there are obediences in front of you that you're not sure you can tackle, you need to remember who it is who calls you. You need to remember all that he's done. He's the God who's led you to himself. He's the God who made a way to Christ through all the wilderness of your unbelief. He's the God who sent his son as a sacrifice and sent his spirit to dwell in your heart, to give you life and belief in his name. To give you the oil of gladness instead of mourning. To give you life in abundance instead of eternal death. To give you joy in the place of judgment. Isn't he the God who has proven himself in your life time and time and time again? Not just in your salvation, but over and over again. And the many things that he's done and the ways that he leads you. Don't look back on the places that you've been and forget the one who's led you all your days through. Remember God's past when you remember your own. Remember his history of goodness and faithfulness to his people. And so faith answers discouragement first by remembering God's past. Secondly, faith deals with discouragement by remembering God's presence. Here we return to verses 4 and 5. And you notice that those verses begin with a recalibration. Yet now, says the Lord. In verse 3, he asked the people how the temple looked now. At this present moment from From what you can see, how does it look now to you in the midst of your frustration? But then in verse 4, the Lord replaces their now with his now. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. Those last four words make the difference. Because, of course, it's, it's one matter to remember or to know or even to believe that God has been faithful all throughout his history with his people categorically. It's one thing to read all those wonderful stories in the Bible and say, yes, yes, God was with them and God was leading them and God was caring for them. It's one thing to believe that God categorically is with his people. It's another matter entirely to know that he is with you. He's close beside you, nearer than your next breath, that he inhabits the praises of his gathered people, that he indwells and empowers every single one of his believing saints. That's a different category of doctrine and faith. But that's exactly what we need because it's the spiritual truth that puts God's people to work. The truth of God's presence is the difference between discouragement and boldness. Between paralyzed inactivity and functional obedience. Notice that in those two verses, verses 4 and 5, God gives three commands to his people. He says, be strong. He says, work. And he says, fear not. Now the first command is related to the last one. Be strong, says the Lord, three times over. Be strong and do not fear. Another good translation of verse 4 is take courage. Take heart. Show a little spiritual backbone for what the Lord is calling you to. Do not shrink back at the things 
that are fearful. Take courage, be strong, says the Lord. Courage is what they needed because the way things are headed so far, everything looks like it's about to go pear-shaped. And maybe their fears were beginning to snowball the way that our fears sometimes snowball. It starts with one thing and then explodes into a million other semi-connected thoughts. The temple is, is not big enough. It's too insignificant. The temple is going to take more effort than they've got to give. And you know, while they're busy working on the temple, their crops are probably going to go to waste and, uh, and their flocks are all going to be scattered. And I bet their kids are going to be sick and their wife is going to be cranky. And the next thing you know, it's probably foolish for us to be out here in the first place. Does that runaway train of thought sound familiar to any of you? They're gripped with fear that their efforts are going to be for nothing. So the Lord steps in. He says, do not fear. Be strong. I am with you. The Lord Jesus said something very similar to his disciples in Mark's gospel. You remember that night that they were in the boat and they were rowing hard and pushing against the storm. And and then comes this figure walking to them on the water. It was bad enough already. They thought they were going to go down. And now here comes this figure and someone screamed because they thought it was a ghost. And they're all on the verge of collapse. Until Jesus announces his presence among them. Take courage, he says. It is I. Do not be afraid. That's the way the Lord regularly emboldens his people. He reminds them that he is with them. Moses was overwhelmed at his call to go down and face Pharaoh man to man, to be the spokesman of God, to say, let's leave all of these slaves alone, shall we? Shout? I don't know if that's a word. It will be. He doesn't know what to do. He's afraid to go down and face Pharaoh. So what does the Lord say to him? But... I am with you. Joshua has been tasked with this enormous duty of leading the people now into the promised land to take possession of it. All the things that God had said he was going to give to the people. Uh, This land where there were people who were so tall and so strong that the people would rather turn around and go to Egypt 40 years ago than face them. And now as an older man, Joshua is back there and he's the one who has to lead them and he may be afraid. And so the Lord says to him, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We can multiply example after biblical example, but the basic shape always stays the same. When the Lord calls his people to things that are so big they leave us feeling fearful, he also adds the promise of his presence. He does it to give us a holy boldness. The Lord reminds us that he is with us to give us courage for those things that he commands. The Lord also gives us his presence to make us able to accomplish the things that he calls us to do. Not just willing to do them, not just zealous to do them, but able to do them. Here again, we could multiply biblical examples. It's Stephen, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit to preach Christ before the council. Where did that kind of learning and, and boldness and execution come from? 
Right? Where did he learn to say such things? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's David, the psalmist, filled with the Holy Spirit to make his pen a ready scribe, to give us words that we're still singing and praying and praising the Lord with centuries later. It's the apostles who received the indwelling paraclete to lead them into all truth and to lead the church along with them. Look through the Bible, you're going to find that anything at all worthwhile that God's people accomplish for the Lord is done through the power, through the presence of his indwelling spirit. So the Lord not only calls them to be strong and not to fear, but the Lord calls them to be strong and do the work. Let God's courage lead you to action, he's saying. Put your faith in practice. Do it by clearing the rubble and stacking the blocks and setting the timbers and building the house that the Lord has commanded. It's not very glamorous, is it? It's not glamorous work like the apostles. We imagine the apostle ministry might have been. It's not like the prophets speaking God's word. It's not glamorous, but this also is work that comes from the God who stays with his people. Probably the the best biblical example here in this context is a little-known hero of the Old Testament church by the name of Basilel. His name shows up just fewer than ten times in Scripture, but he's the one the Lord chose to oversee the tabernacle project in the wilderness outside of Sinai. Exodus chapter 31 tells us that the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold silver and bronze and cutting stones and carving wood and work in every craft. And it's not very glamorous, is it? It's the work that the Lord demanded. It's what God's people needed at the present time, and it is exactly what he himself supplies by the giving of his spirit. It makes you perhaps remember those times that Moses was discouraged by the scope of the work in front of him. Those times that his faith was flagging and his ability to lead such a great people of the Lord seemed very small. But Bezalel was there as a small reminder that God was with his people, that God could cause them to accomplish all of his purposes. Haggai was there doing the same. He was a reminder that God was still with them centuries later. His faithfulness hasn't changed and his presence hasn't been revoked and God was still with them, giving them boldness and giving them backbone and giving them brick by brick obedience. We listen to that and we think about temples and we wonder, what does all of this have to do with us? Where does it come home? Well, it comes home in understanding that the usefulness of God's people rests squarely upon the Emmanuel principle. Anything that is worth doing, anything that is worthwhile in our obedience and our service to the Lord and to his church happens because God is with us. It's true that you're not called to build a temple where God dwells among humanity. But if you're a Christian, you are called to labor in the building up of the church of Christ. We're called to build up the church 
individually as living stones through the project of our sanctification. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're called to build up Christ's church relationally as we encourage one another, as we forgive one another, as we maintain our fellowship in the bond of peace. We're called to build up the church missionally as we go and make disciples of all nations. And at various points in our lives, each of those things will, be, uh, will seem to us far larger than we could ever accomplish. And the answer is to remember God's presence. He is the one who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's the one who's at work among you, producing his fruits of peace and patience and kindness and gentleness for the sake of our unity. He's promised to always be with you, to never forsake you to the end of the age. The Lord wants you to remember when his calling seems too big, when his commands seem unaccomplishable, he wants you to remember that he's with you. He wants you to remember his presence. Now, lastly, faith deals with discouragement by remembering God's future. By the time we get to verse 6, you can see the progression in the text. Verse 3, the Lord questioned them about the former things that once were. In verse 4, he interrupts their frustration with, with the now of his presence. And in these closing verses, he tells them to consider what's coming. He says, yet once more in in just a little while. This is the way that faith always operates in times of difficulty. Faith always looks back to what God has done. Faith always looks up to who God is. And faith always looks forward to what he will still do for his people. But you know, if we're honest, if we're able to admit a few things to ourselves, we might say that even when we've grasped God's faithfulness in the past, Even when we're in those moments that we have the wonderful scent of his presence with us now, sometimes the hardest part is believing that the future God has planned for his people will be all that he says that it can be. In other words, even when we know what God is capable of, we tend to diminish what he thinks he might do. We tend to shrink down God's ability to our capacity to believe him. We fall in in different places on this spectrum. I'm aware of that. Some of us are Eeyores. Some of us are more like Tigger. Some of us think that things will always be rosy. Others are just waiting for things to fall apart. But the reason God so often reminds his people of what he's preparing for their future is the fact that even the most optimistic of us probably wouldn't believe what he has in store for us if he told us. In fact, he tells us in the New Testament what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man has imagined the things that God has in store for his people. We always shrink down what we think God is capable of. We forget that God operates on the Ephesians 3 model of far more exceedingly and abundantly than all we could ask or think. Take the Jews in Haggai's day. How many of them, from where they were, even with the prophet coming and speaking to them, how many of them do you think thought that verses 6 to 9 could actually become reality? The Lord in those verses picks up on that buzzword from verse 3. He talks about glory. How does the glory that you see now stack up to what came before? 
But soon, says the Lord, verses 6 and 7, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Not only that, but he says the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Who could imagine it? Who could be so bold as to ask for it that the glory of this temple that they were building would somehow be more glorious than the glory of Solomon's temple? It should be obvious in the context that that from this discussion of, of buildings and treasures that the primary meaning of this concept of glory in Haggai here, uh, in this passage, has to do with outward visible splendor. Right, the surface level of the, the glory of the temple of God is going to be the, the glittering, sparkling gold and the, the wonderful stones and all the beautiful carvings. And he says he's going to make this temple even more visibly impressive than that of Solomon's temple had been if they could believe it. And to make that point abundantly clear, he speaks of shaking heaven and shaking earth and shaking the nations too. He's talking about upsetting world orders. He's talking about a redistribution of wealth on a massive scale that they could not comprehend. Although for him, it's as simple as you getting on a website and moving your funds from your savings account to your checking account. He says in verse 8 that all the silver and all the gold is already his anyway. He simply shuffles it however he sees fit. Actually, the evidence of that came uh, not long after Haggai spoke these words, and you can read it later. Ezra chapter 6. You remember there that the, the enemies of God's people are opposing this temple construction project. And they write a letter to the king asking, you know, shouldn't somebody stop these Jews before they start up a rebellion already? And the king sends back a very puzzling answer. Ezra chapter 6 tells us that not only the leaders of the land were to let the work proceed, but chapter 6, verse 8. King Darius says the cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province beyond the river. That means all of the tax money that those governors were collecting was no longer theirs. All the silver and all the gold belong to the Lord and he can just shuffle it wherever he wants. Far more abundantly than the people could have asked or thought. And in just a few short years, or as verse 6 says, in just a little while, the Lord provided what the people could hardly have believed. As amazing as that must have been for the Jews. There's another dimension to this passage that pushes us uh, to consider. It's not explicit here. Uh, this uh, This is not something that we're going to see on the surface, but it is there. It's there specifically in the language that the Lord uses to describe the wonderful things that he's going to do for his people. He promised, he said, that he would fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. He promised a glory that was more glorious than the glory that came before it. And of course, it's all fine and good to talk about silver, gold, and precious stones. But in biblical language, there is a glory far more fundamental to what it means for a temple to be a temple in the first place. (coughs) Excuse me. Search the scriptures. Do your own study later. I encourage you to 
if you have one of those fancy computer programs like I do, you can search for two terms at the same time and look up language of filling and glory in the same passages. And every other place, except perhaps for this one, if that's not what it's talking about, every other instance in the Old Testament, when it talks about a temple filled with glory, it is speaking about the glory of God himself dwelling among his people. It's always the glory of the presence of the Lord. Exodus chapter 40. When the tabernacle was completed, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and Moses was not able to enter because the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Happened again. When the day of Solomon's dedication, 1 Kings 8, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And time and time again, during the days of the exile, the Lord sent his word to Ezekiel to prophesy the same thing to the people all over again. You remember Ezekiel's grand vision is that there was a day coming when the temple would be rebuilt, when the glory of the Lord would fill the whole place from the inner sanctuary to the outer court, glory that was far more glorious than even it had been in the days of Solomon. The descending cloud of the Lord filling every inch, every square inch of space in the tabernacle. A day coming when the gold and the silver themselves would seem dim compared to the beauty of the king of its temple. And the people of Haggai's day completed their temple. Just as the Lord called them to. They rejoiced and they shouted and they sacrificed sacrifices and we might imagine that they sat and they waited for the Shekinah glory of the Lord to descend and to come and to cover the altar, and it didn't. It never did. There's no mention in the scripture. There is no record in the Jewish writings after this time. God says, I'm going to fill this place with glory, and the glory will be greater than the glory that you've ever seen, anything that you could ever imagine. And if they were waiting for it, they were discouraged and disappointed, perhaps. They thought their future here in the temple was going to be far better than they could have imagined. That's what God had told them, and it turned out to be just normal, just gold and silver. And the temple was missing its most important element. The glory that made all the gold worthwhile, and so it remained for 500 years. Until the day that a newborn baby was brought to the temple for a different kind of dedication, and there was a man there who was filled with the Spirit of God. And he saw that child, and he scooped him into his arms, and he began to speak and to prophesy. And you remember the words of Simeon, don't you? Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The Lord does more than we expect him to very often. He doesn't always do it on our timetable. He doesn't always do it from where we can see it. He doesn't always do it in a way that we expect it, but his future for his people is always far more glorious than you could imagine. Far better than you have the boldness to ask. 
So when discouragement comes, dear believer, look to him. Remember God's past. Remember God's presence. Remember his future with you. Let's pray together.